0: Welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher in Utah, and I wanna change the mental health game. This podcast is all about making mental health information easy to understand, access, and share. It's gonna take all of us together to break down stigma, make peace with mind-body food, make therapy cool, and invest and take time and care for our mental health. Let's do it one therapy thought at a time what is up my therapy thoughts fam welcome back to the podcast we are jumping into season three and this episode is no joke we are jumping in with no doubt talking about psychedelics and psychiatry and mental health this episode was such a cool experience. It was such a pleasure to interview these two folks, Dr. Adele LaFrance and Reed Robison. Let me tell you about them, what they're doing. They are game changers in every sense. Okay, so Adele LaFrance is a clinical psychologist, she's a research scientist and author. Um, I actually met her at an eating disorder conference a couple years back, and I was like, hey, you gotta be on my podcast. Like, you are brilliant. And she finally made it. She's a leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine. And she has a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, and psilocybin. So Adele has a particular interest in mechanisms and models of healing, including spirituality, emotion processing. And couples and family therapy. So I'm so excited for you to hear her expertise. Uh, she's a wordsmith and is really good at explaining psychedelics, mental health, treatment, research. Um, so you're going to love it. And then we're also joined by Reed Robison. He's one of my buddies locally here in Utah, and he's a game changer, a board certified psychiatrist. He's the co-founder of Cedar Psychiatry. And he's also the medical director at the Center for Change, who I love, a leading eating disorder program here in Utah. He is currently the coordinating investigator for the MAPS-sponsored study, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study of eating disorders. So he's high up in the world of psychedelic medicine and research and psychotherapy. Um, So Reed, as an early adopter and researcher of ketamine and psychiatry, he led pivotal ketamine studies leading up to the FDA approval of spravado. So to date, Reed has guided thousands of ketamine therapy journeys and hundreds of Spravato dosing sessions. He provides medical support and psychedelic therapy at plant medicine retreats abroad. Game changers. We talk today to a board-certified psychiatrist and a Ph.D. clinical psychologist about psychedelics and mental health, and I got to tell you, I got questions, and they got answers. It's a really cool episode, so stick around, enjoy, share, and let's learn some therapy thoughts. What's up, guys? Let's talk about drugs and therapy. Ketamine, ayahuasca, psychedelics. Tell me everything. Let's go.
1: Let's do it.
2: Well, I'll just start off by saying this: if my, you know, twenty-one-year-old self, twenty-seven-year-old self, post-PhD self, um, could see me now, like she would not believe it because I really came from. A tradition or a culture where I saw drugs as black and white. In other words, drugs are bad. They mess with your brain. They are dangerous. And if you use them, it's because of a problem, an underlying problem. And so the fact that you know this many years later, I'm a an advocate, a scientist, and a clinician that's involved in com- combining psychedelic substances with psychotherapy. I mean, it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around. But I honestly, I'm so grateful because what we've been seeing clinically and in research is that psychedelic medicine for mental health, I think, is going to be the equivalent of like antibiotics for physical health. Wow! You know, in terms of a of a revolution. Not to say that there are not many risks and challenges and issues that we need to sort through to get there in a good way, but the potential is massive.
0: And this is legitimate. You're real yes. people Oh yeah, no. do, We've with got real it. degrees. This yeah. isn't backyard sketchy. Like, this is clinical. It's based in no. evidence. Yeah, it's so, real drugs.
2: Yeah, that too. Real drugs. No, honestly, and just to kind of, just to honor the people who have shared their stories with us, there are many individuals who have gone that route and it hasn't gone well for them. Mm. And so when we're talking about psychedelic medicine, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, we're talking above ground with people who have training, with research-based protocols, um, because there are real risks related to doing it in those other ways.
0: So what does that look like? What does it look like to do psychedelics in a clinical setting? mental health
1: sure i can take that one. Uh, first of all the word psychedelic is a fun one it means to wander in the mind and so it's like medicine for the soul in a way and it gets you outside of yourself gets you uh, outside of these tightly held beliefs your story about what you can and can't do should and shouldn't do your your worries and your fears and the things that hold us back it helps uh open the mind to new possibilities, and when you combine it with therapy, then it starts to stick and make real changes that are lasting and get people unstuck who have been um, struggling for a very long time.
0: Um, I read an analogy you have about mountains and snow on your Instagram. Can you share that?
1: Sure. Yeah, we are in Utah. Uh, I have an alternate, depending on the season, analogy that uses mountain bikes, but we'll go with the ski one. Okay. Um, so um, if our minds are like a ski slope where so many people ski down it and make these grooves and tracks and moguls, then the people who go after slip into those same grooves and tracks. It's like our minds and our patterns and habits, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. But when you do psychedelics, it's like a fresh coat of powder. It's like a black slate, what we call neuroplasticity. It lets you choose uh, the course down the mountain or set consciously the patterns in your life. Okay, so if my client is
0: taking Zoloft plus psychotherapy, what I've always heard in grad school is like that's the best combination to like have breakthroughs with depression specifically, but anxiety and stuff right why isn't that as effective as what we're talking about or is it or what's why is this different
1: yeah so um zoloft and psychotherapy or meds and therapy traditionally has been the most effective combination that we have um it doesn't work for everyone it's almost like a a coin toss it's been life-saving for many but there are many left with severe, serious symptoms of depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, other conditions that are very difficult, uh, that just don't get fully addressed by these uh, traditional medications. So we're welcoming in with open arms this new era in psychiatry of of using psychedelic medicines combined with therapy uh, to help individuals especially with the difficult to treat conditions and if you know, we all have this uh, passion for working with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And if you look at anorexia, for example, there are no FDA-approved medicines for anorexia at all. There's one for bulimia, one for binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So we need new tools.
2: One of the unique features of psychedelics that maybe dif- are um, how they differentiate from something like Zoloft, for example, is that psychedelics have the potential to create lasting brain changes. And that's not something that we see in the same way with these other psychotropics. But like Reid said, like we don't want to dismiss those options because they have helped so many, they will help so many. And psychedelic medicine won't be for everyone. But um, in some of the research studies, for example, looking at smoking cessation or alcoholism, you know, participants used magic mushrooms or psilocybin once or twice. And in a significant proportion, we're no longer using these substances, you know, at follow up, and so there's the potential here not just to help people to cope, but to help ha- help people to transform some of the neurobiological patterns that might be keeping um, their issues kind of going in their everyday life. If that
0: makes sense. Yeah. This this leads me to kind of want to break it down more for people who are like, okay, what are we even talking about? Yes. Yeah. What the freak are psychedelics? Like, what are we working with? What are their names? What do they do? How do they take them? Before our podcast, Adele was like, oh, uh, she said something about, you know, you can you can take ayahuasca by drinking. I was like, oh, you drink it. Like, I think it's right. so foreign. So what are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, well, we'll break it down
2: <laughs> um, together. So first we can talk about the classics. So classic psychedelics include ayahuasca psilocybin, um, DMT,
1: mescaline, mescaline. ibogaine.
2: Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one category. And then there's another category of psychedelics that we call empathogens, and that would
0: include
2: MDMA and substances similar to MDMA. On the street it's called ecstasy. And then there's ketamine, which is kind of in a class of its own.
1: Yeah, and we like to lump it in with psychedelics, like MDMA is lumped in with psychedelics, uh, thanks to the beautiful work that MAPS has been doing for using MDMA for PTSD, for example. And ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. It's approved for use in anesthesia, but discovered in recent years, you know, a decade ago or more, that it has these rapid antidepressant properties and psychedelic properties that we can use in therapy.
2: So there's like subclasses of psychedelics, if you will, but one thing that they all have in common is that to some degree they are consciousness, they alter your state of consciousness.
0: So my training is first and foremost in substance abuse. Mm. Working outpatient, inpatient, rehab, and I remember a client um, who was stuck in depersonalization because of, like, a deep K-hole, some bad trip on ketamine, and so all of my sirens start going off. Mm-hmm. How do we – is this just simply because of dosage or, like, quality? Like, what, what's up?
1: Well, a, a couple things. If you look at a, the safety of different drugs, drugs of abuse, drugs uh, that are even legal, like alcohol, Cigarettes, Um, psychedelics always win in terms of the safest, the safest in overdose, the safest in, uh, you know, crime and violence and driving. Um, So there's that piece, and uh, it's been hard for society to swallow this, and it's been. But the data has been there for decades. Back in the sixties, when LSD was legal before it became uh, uh, Schedule One banned substance in the U.S. It was being studied in psychiatry extensively and was uh, initially looking to be quite game-changing for alcoholism. In fact, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, attributes his recovery, his sobriety, his lasting uh, recovery to an LSD session, a therapeutic LSD session. But when he proposed to his uh, board, his group, to uh, suggest that uh, he had to leave AA eventually. But the studies back then, one single dose of LSD uh, would uh, lead to about 50% or more being still sober from alcohol one year later. And that is a lot better than treatment as usual. Yeah,
2: and so, though psychedelics are generally safer, you know, the example you brought up is actually a really legitimate question that we have to look at because we there are some people who might be more likely to have um, adverse events, um, Mm -hmm. like the one you've described, and so part of the work that Reed and I are doing to bring these medicines forward in a good way is to really be very thoughtful about screening processes Mm -hmm. and about risk factors so that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and we can be able to say, we can say like, okay, if you have some of these clinical characteristics or personality features, then you might want to try this psychedelic substance versus this one or none at all.
0: I mean, we do that with with medication anyway. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you tell me some of those? Like, who's this for? Who's this not
2: for? Well, one of the kind of one of the characteristics that so far, at least in the research studies, we can all agree that we want to exclude is someone who has a history of psychosis. Mm. And so if you've had a mind fracture in the past, which is one way of conceptualizing psychosis, and you're using a mind-altering substance, the idea here is that you might be at increased risk for it happening again, and it might be more difficult to resolve. Um, We don't know that that's actually true, but that's generally speaking one of the characteristics that we are kind of being really, really, really cautious around.
1: Yeah, yeah, they, they used to exclude in psychedelic studies anyone who even has a, an immediate family member with a history of psychosis, including ketamine. But in recent years, uh, we've been the more research that comes out, the more we understand about it. And in recent years, that's been uh, relaxed a little bit, where uh, some of us will still. We'll still give psychedelics to someone with a family member who's had psychosis or even someone who's had Mm -hmm. a psychotic episode. If we're watching carefully, we screen carefully, and they're very good support. Hence the need to do this in a clinical setting. Yeah. I I like the protective factors like a support system.
0: You have a clinical treatment team. I mean, it's good practice. Yeah, your
2: family knows you're doing it. They're supportive. You have people you can talk about your experiences in addition to having... A proper mindset around it and a proper setting in which to do it. And actually, speaking of eating disorders, that actually was one of the contraindications for some studies. But now we've learned more about it. At uh, Reed and I are actually working with MAPS to implement a study for eating disorders from MDMA. So not only is it not a contraindication,
1: it is our focus. Wow. Sidebar: What's MAPS? Right. So. They're. MAP stands for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. It's a, uh, a public benefit corporation and nonprofit uh, banded together on this crusade to bring psychedelic medicines back to everyday health care for alleviating suffering. And uh, it was started by this gentleman named Rick Doblin, who is just an amazing individual who's done so much mm-hmm. to advance this space. Uh, and I'm not sure if you've seen the, the data on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, but it's mind-blowing. It's it's game-changing, I would say, and I don't use that lightly in terms of the percentage of people who no longer meet criteria for PTSD six months later. is It's the majority of people after a few sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy.
2: And I guess we want to underline the assisted psychotherapy part, because... Um, what the studies show and what we believe, it's not just the medicine experience. It's the medicine experience combined with prep sessions, intention setting, psychotherapeutic integration, meaning making, um, with the support of trained facilitators.
0: Let's. I want to break down the role of psychotherapy in a minute. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the psychedelics, and then let's add how it's crucial to combine that with Mm -hmm. psychotherapy. So we kind of covered the umbrella of psychedelics, you know, what they are, kind of what they do. Anyone else who shouldn't, who's kind of like a a high risk for this, other than folks with a history of psychosis?
1: Well, any medical conditions need to be evaluated carefully. Uh, While psychedelics are medically safe, we also want to go in consciously uh, to... Aware of all the factors at play, um, for example, ketamine uh, in a clinical setting increases your heart rate and blood pressure a little bit. It's brief; goes back to normal. But we want to know if someone has underlying heart issues okay. because we'll be extra careful. For example, um, there in eating disorders, we look at people's labs, we look at their uh, nutritional status, and and how much how much uh, Reserves they have in a sense that you might have to fast uh, for a good part of a day going into a psychedelic, uh, assisted psychotherapy session for example. And then uh, each psychedelic has individual nuances to consider like ayahuasca we were talking about as an example. That one uniquely has some interactions with antidepressants. So you pretty much have to be off antidepressants before going into an ayahuasca experience. For generally a couple weeks, if it's Prozac, it's like a month or more. Mm, Okay.
0: It's interesting about eating disorders, so you probably wouldn't be doing this in an inpatient setting, maybe more like in recovery, or could you?
2: Well, the study that uh, we've designed is for individuals who have anorexia nervosa, mild, moderate, or severe. Mm. So as long as they're connected with an eating disorder program, we will work with them as an adjunct to their treatment.
1: We cool. yeah. did. Uh, we work closely with Center for Change, as you know, being their medical director. Uh, I've done a lot of ketamine work clinically and uh, research-based with the center. Currently, they do refer their clients from the residential unit for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or Spravato, which is a newly FDA-approved psychedelic-type medicine, uh, like ketamine, and. Uh, it's it's going very well. It's uh, we've figured out a nice uh, dynamic there where uh, we can screen, find the right individuals who might benefit from it, and then uh, and then facilitate that experience for them in uh, a clinic right next to the center. FDA approved. Are any other psychedelics
0: FDA approved? No. So ketamine is kind of the revolution.
2: MDMA is on its way. The projection is twenty twenty two. Wow. It's it's received breakthrough status by the FDA, which means that it shows great potential and we want to be able to kind of move it along as as quickly as possible. But so far, um, that's the only one.
1: Okay. And then next will likely be psilocybin that is in clinical trials, also fast-tracked by the FDA, being studied for treatment of distant depression. Mushrooms. Yep.
2: In fact, in Canada, um, something was just um, shared today that uh, psilocybin therapy was approved for end of life
0: patients. Like palliative care. Yeah, and I don't
2: yeah. I don't know all the details because literally it just happened um, today. But four Canadians battling incurable cancer have been approved by the Minister of Health to use psilocybin therapy. In the treatment of their end of life distress, and so wow. this is monumental. Like this is going to be huge um, in terms of you know moving things forward.
1: If you want to learn more about psilocybin or magic mushrooms for end of life anxiety, there's a beautiful movie that came out last year called Fantastic Fungi that you can watch online. And it we'll has, put that in the yeah. show notes, folks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: It's, it's about uh, work done at uh, Johns Hopkins and other places um, where a single dose of psilocybin with therapy can significantly ease that burden of end-of-life anxiety because no one leaves this world without some kind of distress or worry right. about the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, in just such a, a striking way, such a powerful tool.
0: So my question, who's... Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy for is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Breakthroughs with PTSD, eating disorders, end of life, Mm -hmm. depression. Depression.
2: Mm -hmm. Veterans with PTSD, Mm -hmm. PTSD in general. Yeah, the way we look at it is like, psychedelic medicine can be useful for individuals who um, have not been able to benefit from conventional
1: treatments. And they're catalysts to therapy. I, I see them as just uh, kind of lighting a fire under that that therapy process or breaking down the walls mm. that uh, otherwise take so long to get through.
0: I see that all the time on the therapy couch, like we're stuck, we're stuck, yeah. we're stuck. We finally get on meds, and then maybe six weeks later, we start to even be able to yeah. barely challenge thinking errors.
2: Yeah. One of the women that we interviewed as part of our ayahuasca study, she's featured in a documentary called The Path of the Shaman. And um, it was really cool to hear some of the things that she shared. She compared her experiences in conventional treatment with ayahuasca. And she said, You know, this was one of the only times where I couldn't escape, not in a bad way, but just in a very matter of fact way, I couldn't escape feeling with this unprocessed emotion or painful memories except when I was under the effect of ayahuasca. And I could do it in a way where I felt held and I felt, you know, um, not in control, but not out of control, you know? Like, Mm. it felt measured, it felt doable, and she was able to kind of move through a lot of the pain that was fueling so much of her um, angst, basically. Wow.
1: Gotta feel it to heal it.
2: Yeah, and, and psychedelics can help you go to those places where your normal defenses just wouldn't let you. Right. And it's not because you don't want to. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. And goodness knows I've had experiences myself where I'm like, you know, with, uh, with ayahuasca, for example, where I've gone abroad. And I've seen a major blind spot. I'm like, are you kidding me? I do psychotherapy for a living. I really believe in my own psychotherapy, and I'm learning this for the first time at age 41, you know? So it's not for lack of trying on people's part. It's just that psychedelics have a way of revealing things that are kept hidden by our defenses because our defenses believe that it's too much. Like, we can't handle that.
0: Like, our wiring, our brain's protecting us. Exactly. And this is, like, a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating.
1: So when we work in ayahuasca retreat settings uh, abroad where where we can, where it's legal. Uh, We'll give someone after their ayahuasca experience a couple questionnaires. One's about the mystical or spiritual experience, how strong that was. And the next one is about an emotional breakthrough. And so the data shows from psilocybin studies and other work in psychedelics that if you have a strong mystical experience, and an emotional breakthrough, meaning you face something difficult and you make it through the other side, which everyone does on on psychedelics. Those two things combined uh, generally leads to more lasting changes and benefits from psychedelic therapy. We can connect that to what we know about mental health: the role of
0: spirituality, the role of resilience, yeah. post traumatic growth. Like, if this is facilitating that, that's evidence based. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, Carl Jung uh, used to. S- get frustrated, the famous Swiss psychiatrist from uh, many, many years ago, who I admire greatly, he, he uh, was frustrated with working with addiction because he couldn't get the therapy to stick, he couldn't get people unstuck, and he thought what we need is a spiritual experience, a mystical experience, and that was the missing link, and he didn't have a tool to catalyze it or to uh, occasion it lot of questions. Okay. Uh, stigma.
0: Uh-huh. Therapy alone, like good luck trying to convince people to go to therapy and need help. And now we want to break through the stigma of drugs, the criminalization, the like, this is a numbing and avoidance. What the-
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. For oh, sure. <laughs> totally. I mean, listen, like I, that, I was that person, you know, I, so I get it. I have a lot of compassion and patience for people who have difficulty wrapping their head around this because I literally was in that place. And what helped me was hearing about it from scientists and clinicians. Um, And so that's not everyone's path. You know, other people might benefit more from hearing about people's lived experiences, but that's what benefited me. And so one of the ways that we want to contribute to the field is to bring research and bring clinical experiences so that we can look at it in this more objective way. You know, it's it, it, it can be scary for people to contemplate these things. And so part of how we break the stigma is talking about it. And so that's why we're actually really grateful to have this opportunity to talk to you about it because we're hoping that this message can reach, you know, a few people who might really need some hope.
0: Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, isn't that step one with any stigmas? Like let's normalize it. Let's yeah. talk about it. Let's change our language. Let's build yeah. education. Um, you reference studies. I mean, where, I mean, are we just Googling ketamine on PubMed or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that where we're going to find this you, stuff? You absolutely
2: can. Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. You can type in any one of these substances and you'll find peer reviewed research, mostly conducted on humans. Um, where you can learn more about it in these more intricate
0: ways. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I Let's say I wanna go on your retreat and do ayahuasca. What does that look like? I fly to Costa Rica?
2: Well, yes, this particular retreat that we're going to be co-facilitating is happening in Costa Rica, so you would fly to Costa Rica, and then um, on the very first day, we would assemble as a group, so 24, individuals who are coming for the same reason and start to talk about why you're here. You know what brought you here? What made it so that you traveled all these all this all these miles, paid all this money, you know, to be able to have this experience. There's obviously a part of you that is yearning for something more, for something deeper, and so we want to get to know that part of you because we call that the inner healing intelligence. Mm. The part of you that loves you so much that you know you're in this Foreign setting, doing this out-of-the-box thing to see if you can't reconnect to yourself in some really significant way. So that's the first part is intention setting. Then what what we do that I feel is unique compared to other places, not to compare, but just to kind of highlight what we feel is really important, is we actually do training sessions on how to work with ayahuasca. Mm. The first time I worked with ayahuasca, I did not have any training or skills. And it bowled me over. I was terrified. I didn't know what was going on and what I should say yes to and what I should say no to in terms of visions, hallucinations, feelings. It was way too much. Hmm. And so I used that experience. And, you know, along with our colleagues, we've developed training protocols. So this is what you do in ayahuasca when you feel scared. This is what you do in ayahuasca when you feel physical pain. This is, what, And we practice. So we have a whole practice session. And then you have your first ceremony. And your first ceremony is about four to six hours. Everyone takes a turn drinking the tea, going back to their mat, reconnecting with their intention. And then you let ayahuasca connect with your inner healer. And together, they let things happen and unfold. And whatever happens, we trust. And you go to sleep. And in the morning, um, you take some time to journal, to meditate, whatever feels good, connect with others. And then we spend the next day and a half helping people to understand their experiences. I saw a black cat, you know, with purple horns. How can I make sense of that? You know, or I recalled a memory, a really poignant memory with my parents from when I was seven. What does that mean right now in this current context? So trained facilitators will help people to make meaning of their experiences. And then we start again. All right, based on what we learned, based on where we're at, What kind of intention do you want to set for yourself going into night two? And then we do that um, over the course of three ceremonies.
0: Every person listening to this podcast is going to want (laughs) to go. This is sick. Are the facilitators licensed psychotherapists or psychiatrists, or what are they? At
2: our retreat, um, it's a unique treatment setting. We have a high, high uh, staff to participant ratio, and every single person who is in a counseling or a psychotherapeutic role is a regulated health professional.
1: Nice.
0: That's really comforting to know with these types of huge breakthroughs, there is protocol, Mm -hmm. there's a plan, there's professionals, no one's winging it, this isn't just in the woods.
2: No, although I will say, like, ayahuasca is an indigenous medicine, Mm. and traditionally it is served by indigenous people. And so I think it's important to first just name that. That's how it's okay. That's you know, how it was. How it's meant to be. Our particular group, our ceremonial leaders, are North American born, but um, Peruvian trained. And so some people would see that as you know inauthentic, uh, in some ways, which it is. It's absolutely true. Um, but we we feel really comfortable with our team because they understand both the indigenous ways of being. And they understand the North American reality. And so they're able, what we've seen is they're able to help guide these participants who are mostly North American, bridge those two worlds as well.
0: I think calling out cultural appropriation and understanding the discussion of cultural appreciation in this context yeah. is really important to be sensitive and yeah. to understand the cultural background. Yeah, because,
2: like, you know, you wouldn't go to Peru and say, you know, you know, you need psychotherapy post-ayahuasca because integration is woven into the fabric of their culture. Okay. You know, like, they don't need to do that because it's part of, necessarily, because it's part of their culture is part of their society. In North America, Reed and I really strongly believe that integration is very important because we live a very different lifestyle.
1: Right. Yeah, okay. You know, what's interesting is when when I got out of med school, I was so gung ho about, uh, Saving the world that I would go on these medical missions like a different country every year I was in Refugee camps along the Thai Burma border post-quake Haiti or rural Africa, and then uh, it didn't feel Authentic or like I was you know personally Making a difference Uh, and then it's it's interesting to me after having gone to the jungle To drink of this indigenous plant medicine and have my mind and my heart blown wide open It's interesting to me To see how the tables have turned and how much I am personally learning from these ceremonial traditions, these age-old traditions uh, where, you know, in some shamanic cultures you go uh, when you're depressed, disheartened, you go to your ceremonial leader and they're they're not going to give you a a quick fix to numb out the symptoms. They're gonna ask you when did you stop dancing or singing or connecting with your tribe, nature, Mm. things like that. And I think that's the kind of integration that's built into some cultures that Adele's referring to that we, frankly, need more of around here. Oh, that's what I'm
0: all about, right? Like, let's change this mental health game.
1: Yeah.
0: It's not the therapy couch that does it. It's the community, the social support, the dance parties, the, like, community. community. On the soil. Yeah, let's connect. Let's feel, deal, heal together. Like, we need this missing component. Oh, I'm getting stoked. I love this. <laughs> Give me before we jump into psychotherapy, give me kind of the same spiel on ketamine and MDMA since it sounds like those are kind of the top three that we're using. If I want to go do ketamine at Reed's Clinic, or if I'm at yeah. the Center for Change, someone wants someone's resistant to like depression meds, treatments not working, they're a great, candidate, yeah. what's that look like? Sure.
1: So two ways we use ketamine for therapeutic purposes are High dose and low dose. High dose for a transformative journey, low dose to facilitate openness and therapy. Uh-huh. I'll talk about the, the high dose first, which we typically give by injection in the shoulder, a little needle, it lasts about 30, 40 minutes. You go on this journey, this uh, like visionary dreamlike state uh, and revisit, you know, parts of your life or people or places or memories, maybe see some weird colors or end up in outer space uh, and back and have all this rich content from outside of yourself to review and make meaning of and integrate into your life. Sometimes old traumatic memories might come up, but we go in there with intention and purpose and support. And when you're outside of yourself with this calming medicine on board and someone holding space for you, it's a safe way to do that. And, uh, And with ketamine in particular, it tones down, as a dissociative, it tones down the body's fight or flight response so that stuff can come up finally. So you can uh, feel it, heal it, deal with it. Um, And so that's about a 90 minute process in office. Add on some uh, therapy afterwards, some integration the next day, and uh, do that a few times. That's a typical course of of in-office ketamine treatment the other way, low dose, we give by either a lozenge or a nasal spray. And it uh, takes you into an, an altered state or a non-ordinary state of consciousness, but more mild, where you can talk to your therapist. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll often do it in our office, but sometimes they'll do it with outside therapist's office. If we know how they respond to this, they could, uh, in theory, bring their, their prescription here take a a lozenge before session, and you could work with them on some content and places that they previously may not have been able to access in therapy. Wow.
0: If I, as a therapist, want to do that for people, I don't feel like I should wing it. How do I get trained?
2: Well, we're actually, well, first of all, there are some existing training uh, programs uh, in the U.S. that have really good reputations. Uh, One is with an organization called Fluence, the other is another organization called Polaris. There are others. Um, But then also, Reed and I are actually developing a new ketamine-assisted psychotherapy treatment model that is emotion-focused, and we're in the middle of finalizing the protocol and actually trialing it with patients before we conduct our clinical trial. And so there will be opportunities locally, you know, for individuals who are interested in training in this modality. And the, the thing that I'm most amazed about with ketamine, and I never thought I'd work with ketamine because I had a bias. So after I got over my drug bias, then I had a bias about, like, chemical versus plant-based, okay. you know. And so then I was stuck on, like, just plant-based. I don't do, you know, I don't believe in chemicals. And then I met Reed, and I heard about his amazing work with ketamine, and then I learned about MDMA and started working with MAPS in that way. And I'm like, okay, we can't afford to throw any of these things out because it there's the potential is so incredible. And I thought only the plant medicines had the soul, but then I realized that all these other substances, they interact with our soul. Like, they're working with our inner healer, and so they all have this potential to be so soulful. Anyways, the thing about ketamine that I love that Reed has really taught me is that after you take ketamine, you have this like 24, 48 hour window of neuroplasticity. So if you time potent psychotherapy within that 48 hour window, like it really is psychotherapy on drugs, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the timing of it is so structurally powerful. Um, So I just, I think that it's, there are so many ways that we can capitalize
1: on the potential. So yesterday, I gave ketamine to a client. Mm -hmm. We set an intention beforehand, uh, held space for her on her journey, talked about it after. This morning, she came in and did a a deep dive psychotherapy session with Adele, chair work. I come into the office after, and there was a bucket of Kleenexes. (laughs) And and so that's uh, an example of what she's talking about, that window of opportunity we have to really go deep. And if
2: people are interested, we're actually going to be giving a training in November, uh, through an organization called Mission Empowerment, and it's going to be a one-day training on emotion-focused ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and so we can provide those details in case your listeners are
0: interested. Yeah, we'll throw those in the show notes. Um, I love, I keep hearing you say, like, intention, purpose, support, yes. and the structure around the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and it's using these foundational skills of like rapport. Like that's what works but I feel like we have rapport and we're just kind of waiting for freaking neuroplasticity to fall out of the sky. Like you're fostering that plus the rapport. Mm -hmm. So what's the beef? Like what's the cons? Because this makes a lot of sense just
1: based on like counseling theory. Well, what you're talking about is is the concept of set and setting with psychedelic substances. It's a big deal. They are uh, amplifiers of what's going on in your subconscious, in a way. So if you go in with anxiety, there's a chance, especially if you're not feeling safe, that can kind of get blown up. And so we do pay a lot of attention to uh, the preparation, the screening, like we talked about, the preparation and the safe uh, therapeutic setting for it.
2: We build in rituals too, so that you know every session we start off with a breathing practice. Every session we start off with an intention, so that there's a level of predictability too and a familiarity that develops across over time.
0: That's going to help ease anxiety. I think mm-hmm. a big payoff of this podcast is we know what to expect now. Like, what do these words mean? Mm-hmm. Kind of mean what? And yeah. uh, just the education, that familiarity, of the, the ritual is so yeah. soothing people to understand
2: there are downsides though that I think are worth mentioning um you know like I if you don't have that real structured set setting and integration support all the rest like for example there's this one person that um shared with me her story she had a revelation about um her family that was really hard to reconcile you know um, she was the only one doing healing and she had this revelation and then she found it really hard to reintegrate into her family structure and um, I wish we could have been there for her to help give her some ideas strategies skills to ease that reintegration but some people do have shakeups in terms of how they see themselves, how they see their world how they see society that can cause, some, you know, uh, I don't want to be dramatic, but some level of crisis internally. Um, So I cannot emphasize enough the importance of aftercare.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate the willingness to say, hey, this is something to watch out for. And I feel like if I said, what are the risks of therapy? You could have said the exact same thing. True. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, If you're investing in internal change and growth and willing to, like, Mm -hmm. do the dance, yeah, there can be fallout. Mm -hmm. So weighing those pros and cons, like, what's the potential benefit of this medicine?
2: Yeah, and it brings us to, like, really being very thoughtful and deliberate about informed consent. Yeah. So these are the possibilities. Rapid growth, you know, significant change that can impact areas of your life so that the person can really sit there and go, like, is that something that makes sense for me right now at this time? Mm-hmm. And maybe things are already so shaky that more shakiness would create destabilization. Or maybe they're like, no, 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 I can't live like this anymore. I feel supported. I trust you. I trust this process. I trust myself. Let's do this and see what's there.
0: I like that trusting their own judgment, that person-centered, client-centered approach. I mean, this mm-hmm. is completely aligned with, Good evidence based psychotherapy. Um,
2: So, what are you going to train to become a psychedelic
0: psychotherapist? I feel like you've got it all, baby. You think I'm stoked? (laughs) You think think I'm ready to convert? Yes. Um, We didn't get to, what if I want to do MDMA?
1: Yeah, let's talk about that one. So, MDMA is an empathogen, like Adele said, a heart opener. And one of the powerful aspects of that medicine tool. Is that it? It increases your sense of uh, safety and connection and trust, not only with yourself but with with those around you, with your therapist, with the with your loved ones, your support people, and uh, then it helps you go eyes wide open into those difficult emotions and heal.
0: Wow. First thought is boundaries as a therapist.
2: Yeah. Well, um, you <laughs> are shining a light on one of the darker aspects of psychedelic medicine in its history. Um, there have been boundary violations in the context of MDMA, assisted so so psychotherapy and other psychotherapies. And so that's one of the other reasons why we don't recommend people uh, go deep diving in the underground world. Because you can't always know, you know, who you'd be working with, and not to say that, or not to say that this is widespread, it's not. I mean, and this happens in regular psychotherapy. This happens in the world. Correct. Yeah. But when you're in an open altered state, you know, it is risky. And so, one of the things that MAPS does, that organization that we work for, is that they always assign a male female therapy team. Okay, and so you know, if someone said to me like, "I'm determined to do underground work," you know, can you help me with harm reduction? Then I would say to them, make sure you have a male-female therapy team or support system, because it especially if you're a vulnerable person, um, either because of gender, socioeconomic status, um, or any other or mental health, for example, you want to have two people there who are supporting you the other thing is what if one person something happens to them like what if they trip and fall and faint and you're you're in an altered state so i really love the approach that maps takes having a male female uh therapist team
0: this goes along again with just good practice yeah we have informed consent we have risk reduction causing no harm like it's yeah that's a beautiful,
1: yeah, prevention.
2: Yeah, they just become more important when people are in these open states,
1: more vulnerable. And once we have that safe set and setting and that trusted team, ideally with that dyad of male and female, the whole experience can become a corrective experience.
0: Mm. Yes. You may have
1: had old wounds from uh, someone of one of those genders or someone like that therapist or team member uh, or you may have had the experience of of feeling shame or invalidation of your experience. And by showing up in that way, holding space, staying present, uh, we can help lay down those new tracks, new ways of being. And yeah.
2: as therapists, we're very happy to be people's projection screens.
1: You <laughs> Transference, know? let's go. Exactly. A good therapy. And
2: so if Reed and I are doing co-therapy, you know, and one person says, Adele, I don't want to look at you right now because you remind me of so and so. No problem. You know, we respect that, we validate that their feelings are heard, their needs are respected, and it doesn't take long for them to be able to come on the other side of it and be like, Okay, thank you, that was really, really helpful, you know, while they were interacting with Reed, for example. Yeah. So there's really cool potential there to restore narratives, heal old Experiences, yeah.
0: Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy—it's mm-hmm. combining yeah. the two. You really need the therapeutic component for it to have its like transformative yeah, depth. Yeah. Um, just because I—I I, I really want to know: Are you injecting MDMA? Am I at a rave taking it? Well, like, what's happening?
1: It's a pill. It's a capsule that okay. you swallow, and when you talk about ecstasy as a street drug. That's typically MDMA plus a bunch of other stuff, who knows what. Oh, gotcha. Stimulants, uh, so what people take on the street in rave settings. This is uh, pure uh, FDA regulated for research purposes, MDMA taken in a capsule. And the, the way that one works, we didn't get to the logistics, is uh, you'll do the same uh, intention and set and setting Uh, procedures we talked about, take uh, a dose of say 80 to 120 milligrams of MDMA initially. There's generally the option to take a second dose. We do that sometimes with ayahuasca, with ketamine as well. Uh, And that's determined by the individual with their therapy team. And the whole experience is four to six hours uh, of therapy. And in a typical course of treatment, at least in the study protocols, there are two or three of these sessions spaced out a few weeks apart.
0: Yeah. So this isn't a one and done situation with any of these psychedelics. It can be, mm.
2: you know, um, it can be. But in the protocols that we're working on, because we're working with um, mental health conditions, then they tend to be, you know, two or three sessions. Okay. Yeah, of active work. In fact. One of the things that Reed and I do that we really believe in is that we actually recruit um, a caregiver or a spouse or a partner or a loved one of the you know of the participant, so that we can ease that transition from clinical setting to home. So we offer them some. We offer. Let's say someone comes in and brings in their husband as a support person. We'll teach their husband some. Validation skills, advanced communication skills, uh, holding space skills, um, and we'll give them all the same education about why we're doing it, what to expect, so that it makes it a lot easier for the participant, you know, to go home and they don't have to answer a bunch of questions after they've just had a psychedelic experience. There's a protocol for how much they're going to talk about, when, you know, to what depth, that kind of thing. So we really feel strongly about the importance of involving family members um, when it's appropriate to do so.
0: Yeah, so is that kind of the expected treatment plan for emotion-focused ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or theory?
2: That's one element of it, yes. Yeah, that we want to identify and work with a significant other to help um, boost the healing. Because it's not just an individual, it's an individual in a system. Right. So if we can recruit a person from that system who's interested, um, who's motivated you know, to take that role, we see this as not just
0: healing an individual, but also potentially healing systems. Again, the substance abuse background of mine, there's so many solutions here, right? We go to rehab, you get clean and sober for 30 days, and then you go home, and everyone knows it doesn't work because you're just back in your system and nothing's changed. And so you relapse and your family's still invalidating you, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think this is crucial. Like, without that, I think integration is what you're talking about, like, integrating this experience. How do you bridge that into real life and, like, bring in the system?
2: Yeah, and it's like, you know, family members have been given a lot of conflicting advice over the years in terms of how to support loved ones with mental health issues. So sometimes when they are being invalidating, or they're engaging in problematic patterns, it's because they think they're doing the right thing, you know, or it's coming from a place of fear. And so part of that education helps to loosen some of those patterns that might be in place.
1: Couples, people doing it together. Mm -hmm. Recommended? Yeah, Yeah, there was a positive, well, MDMA used to be used as a tool in couples therapy uh, decades ago before it became uh, banned as... As an illicit substance, now that it's back in research settings, there was a couple study that was positive, yeah. and more to come. I'm I'm so excited about the potential of that for healing the family unit and beyond.
2: Yeah, our, our colleague in Canada, she's a psychologist, Dr. Ann Wagner, She's the one who um, reinitiated this these couple studies, but we've been working clinically with couples and with families because, you know, we really believe in that systems model. And uh, we hope in the next couple of years to spearhead a family-based psychedelic healing protocol. Minors? Yeah, that's, it's, it's on the menu. Uh, part of FDA's um, expectations for new drug development is that it needs to be shown to be safe um, in children. I don't want to make sure I'm saying it right. Reed, you probably yeah. should feel this one.
1: Yeah, every, every uh, drug on its way to approval with the FDA, in the US anyway, there's a serious discussion and uh, recommendation, if not requirement to study it in children and adolescents. Because once you get a drug on the market, uh, physicians, prescribers can prescribe it for other things. It's it's very common, off-label prescriptions. That's how we give ketamine, in fact. To prove for anesthesia, we give it for depression or for an eating disorder. Uh, even though it may not be approved for uh, any or all those things. So MDMA will very likely need to be studied in adolescence first and uh, very carefully, and we're uh, hoping to uh, help foster that uh, next year. Brad,
0: <laughs> What haven't I asked you? What else do we need to know? What, what's the important stuff?
2: I think that, um, you know, the, the inner healing intelligence intelligence is something, is a concept that was at least new to me, that in each and every one of us, there is a knowing of what needs to happen in order to achieve wholeness, embody, embodiment, you know, um, wellness, but that sometimes we're not able to hear its messages because of our cultural conditioning or because of our life experiences. And so psychedelics actually have the opportunity to reconnect us with that inner healer. And I'll give you an example. Um, If we just did a survey, just around the table here, how easy is it for you to ask for help when you're struggling? Mm -hmm. When you feel sad, when you feel overwhelmed, you know? um, I would say probably two out of three, or all three of us, Mm -hmm. would be able to say, it is hard for me to show up vulnerable in the world Yeah, in some ways and sometimes because of the way we've been conditioned in our culture. And yet asking for help is one of the most basic human needs, you know, or expressing vulnerability. Like how many people would feel comfortable with a megaphone admitting that they feel ashamed or admitting that they feel scared about something? Like it's hard. We have been majorly culturally conditioned to the point where The cultural conditioning drowns out our inner healer. And so when we can reconnect with that part of ourselves, first of all, we recognize it. Like, oh, yeah, that is true. That is a fundamental need of mine. It gives us the courage to show up in the world in a new way. And doing that then gives other people the courage to show up in the world in in a new way. And it has the potential to create waves of um,
0: increased wellness in our culture. Generational change. Uh, Yes. If people can trust their own judgment, I mean, talk about recovery from an eating disorder, like my voice, who I am, identity, like purpose, calling outside of this destructive disease that is culturally reinforced Mm -hmm. casually. Mm -hmm. I mean, how amazing, like
1: what a breakthrough. Yeah, That's really exciting. We're doing the work for our families, Mm -hmm. our whole families, our communities, our children, the generations to come breaking those cycles of, of numbed out. Disconnected ways of being. So, so if you want to be
2: a therapist in this realm, though, a, a word of caution: like, you got to do your own work.
0: Oh, I'm ready. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not
2: saying you. I can already tell. <laughs> Hit in my you're, shoulder. You're me- <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. We're
0: gonna have to turn off the podcast. I got something to do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, because you you can only take people as deep as you've been yourself, and there is something really powerful, at least in the psychotherapeutic realm, where you can say to your client. I have done this too. I know that this hurts. And I can also tell you that what's on the other side is awesome.
0: I think there's so much potential like healing with that transparency. And I'm gonna just say again on the record, I don't trust therapists who don't go to therapy. Mm. Right? Like if you're not doing the work and you have that internalized stigma, you should not be holding space for people who are doing the work you're not doing. So I stand by that. I think it's so crucial to look at yourself and to be willing to to grow if you're in this field
2: yeah i just can't imagine first of all just for my own mental wellness i can't imagine not going to therapy but i see how it helps me in sessions every single day
1: right absolutely at least you're making therapy cool therapy is cool yes therapy
0: is super cool we're at it we're here trying to break through with some psychedelics Thanks for sharing your expertise. I think this is going to be a really important podcast for people to listen and share. You're changing the mental health game. That's all I've ever wanted. So, thanks for being leaders. Thanks for taking risks and um, showing up authentically and teaching us how to feel, deal, heal. We need that. Thank you for having us. Um, Where can folks find you, access what you're doing, join your retreats? Where do we go?
1: Locally, uh, I'm based at cedarpsychiatry.com. That's where our clinics are. Here in Utah. Utah. Yep. And uh, you can also find us at psychedelicinstitute.org, where we list some research we're doing and uh, where the retreat will be listed soon. Only
0: 25
1: spots, huh?
0: 24, yeah. 24. Mm -hmm. Oh, 23. 23, y'all. I'm I'm, uh, buying my Costa Rica ticket. Yeah, Yeah, dibs. Okay. Um, Adele, anything, any other place where we can find you or access what you're doing?
2: Well, um, I provide a lot of uh, resources for caregivers who are supporting loved ones with mental health issues at mentalhealthfoundations.ca. There are videos, there are scripts, um, there are handouts, worksheets. Everything is available for free, 24-7. So if people are faced with, you know, barriers to access... Check it out, uh, mentalhealthfoundations.ca, in case it can be helpful.
1: Accessibility. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, we have an FCAP, Emotion-Focused Academy-Assisted Psychotherapy website as well, E-F-K-A-P.org, where you can at least sign up for the mailing list with more to come.
0: We'll throw that in the show notes so y'all can just click, research, investigate.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Thanks for your ethical work out here. I mean, it's providers like you who are... Changing the game. Likewise, thank Thank you. you. All right, y'all. Till next time, may you be well.